Hello and welcome to I Want What She Has, your weekly antidote to the patriarchy, amplifying women's voices and their stories. I'm your host, Teresa Widman, and I'm excited to welcome on the show today, DeShannon Bowen. Bowens, who is actually, let me just grab, I've lost my screen here in an effort to try to manage all of my tabs. There we go. I want to properly introduce you to, to Shannon. I actually learned about her as the person and her work um, through an event that she's involved with up here in the Hudson Valley. And I was, I had the, the great pleasure to be able to chat with her briefly on the phone. And I'm really grateful that you were able to make the time to come on the show today to Shannon. So let me introduce you to everyone so that they know who you are. Aya Reverend DeShannon Barnes Bowens <clears throat> is the founder of Elera Counseling and Education Services and works as a psychotherapist professional development trainer, and spiritual counselor. Through Ilera, she offers workshops and programs focusing on sexuality and spirituality, sexual abuse, vicarious trauma, and wellness. Aya DeShannon received a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and a master's degree in counseling from Pace University. She has practiced the Ifa Orisa spiritual tradition since 2001 and is an initiated priestess. Aya DeShannon was ordained as an interfaith minister through One Spirit Interfaith Seminary in 2010, where she now serves as co-director. And I actually had, um, I had heard about a book that DeShannon wrote. It's called Hush, right? Am I remembering the title correctly? Hush, Hush. Hush, Hush, yeah. And it was, <clears throat> it's a book about a family essentially and um, the story of their kind of uncovering their own, their own stories and as it relates to abuse or potential abuse and really kind of the stories that we tell ourselves. And I really loved the really the idea of of telling that family story and through it the tremendous healing that can happen both for the family and for others who get to read that story and so i just i knew that deshannon has this great potential for healing and because so much of this show is geared towards my own personal desire to, to create more awareness of healing opportunities, uh, I wanted to invite DeShannon to the show. And I really am so grateful that you said yes and that you made time to talk to me back in, when was that? February, maybe? I don't even remember now. February um, or March. Yes, yes. So how are you doing? Oh, I am, I'm good, Teresa. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And I can't believe it's already summer. <laughs> I know, I know. Do you do anything to celebrate the solstice or to honor the season change? I do, actually. So it was interesting when you were reading my bio, you had 
said one of my titles in my uh, priestess tradition, well, my tradition, which is called Ifa. And so the title is Ia, and Ia means mother. And ever since I've been a practitioner of this tradition, my elders taught me that it was really important for me to honor the divinity that is myself. So the essence of who I really am. Every changing of seasons, that's what I do. So I do specific rituals to really clear out and get me in touch with, with the essence of me, not people's perceptions of me or even my perceptions of myself on a physical level, but more so of a spiritual level. And I did that on the solstice yesterday. That's beautiful. It's been, for me, a big part of my own journey, right, to kind of peel back the layers of the things that we've accumulated over the years. And it's it's beautiful um, when other when I can witness other people and sort of celebrate that other people are doing that and be able to have this conversation to talk about the fact that that is something to be celebrated. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. It's a part of self-care too. Yes, which we are going to talk all about today, aren't we? Yes, <laughs> At we least are. I, I think we are. <laughs> we'll see where the, the spirit takes us. But I wonder if you can share just at the outset to kind of give people a, a, a view through your lens of who you are, what your work is, and how you got into it. And whatever you feel like sharing in that realm would be wonderful. Hmm. Thank you for that. that. I love how the question is broad. So it gives me an opportunity to dive right in where I'm feeling in the moment. So I'll start with sharing part of my vow that I took when I was ordained. I think it's 11 years ago now as an interfaith minister. Part of that vow was to be an advocate for love and understanding. And another part of that vow was to support the healing of the planet and the planet's people, starting with the people, because my feeling is that if we as people heal and we learn better ways to take care of ourselves, then we can live in right relationship with the earth and the earth's inhabitants. And so that is really the focus of my work and what I do before I even had that language. I was drawn to looking into how to prevent sexual abuse from happening in my community specifically, because it was something that wasn't talked about. And I think I wrote about this in the book, but I just didn't have a clue at how prevalent the occurrence of sexual abuse was. So I started there. And when I was had the good fortune to work on a homeless families project back in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I'm originally from, been out here 20 years, but Back then, that, that was my stomping grounds. And I was around a lot of beautiful social psychologists and everybody would ask me, well, what do you wanna do? What do you wanna study? And I said, oh, maybe I'll be a researcher since I'm around all of these researchers. And through listening to the stories of people who were homeless and had encountered various types of difficult and extenuating life circumstances, sometimes these intimate stories of abuse would come up. So when I moved to New York, I decided that I wanted to specialize in really looking in that field. What, what's going on? What causes this? Why are people silent? 
um, who commits the abuses, how can we prevent it? And when I would talk about it and share with people, well, this is actually what I want to study in graduate school, some folks would say, really? Oh, well, that doesn't happen in our community. And wrong, 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 it happens in every community. And so it started there and then it just evolved. It evolved in seminary when I started studying different religions of the world because I had a very diverse clientele in terms of my psychotherapy practice. I wanted to be more religiously literate. And I also found out that I really liked religion. I had some of my uh, Jewish clients who would teach me Yiddish words and explain concepts to me. And I find culture so fascinating. And I wanted to know more about Judaism to be of better assistance to them. I myself was already practicing my tradition of Ifa. And I just felt that there was something in these various religious and spiritual traditions that weren't all bad. Like there are problems. Of course, there are problems. No denying that. I don't try to sugarcoat that or cover that as it relates to oppression, um, like suppressing voices and causing conflict, saying one view is better than the other. But luckily, I went to a place that didn't advocate for that and advocated that all paths of wisdom and love are equal. And we each have a different way of accessing that. So when I was able to do that field of study, combine what I started with in graduate school and plus bring more fullness of my own spiritual practice into the work that I do, it all integrated into this nice whole. And I just let myself be guided down this stream to pick up wonderful experiences. And one of the tools to support me and supporting others was learning about vicarious trauma, wellness, self-care, because that was something that was never mentioned in graduate school when I was there. I hear it's common now, but in my day, it was not. Yeah, I believe that. there's. It's interesting how things, for in my opinion, or at least what I see, they move so much more quickly through our consciousness, kind of through society now. And as soon as trauma started to come up, like it just went everywhere, right? Everyone was talking about trauma. Now, vicarious trauma is is different in in a way. I mean, it still has the same effects, but but I imagine that with everything that's happened throughout the pandemic, that that phrase might become a little bit more commonplace where people understand it more. So it'll be interesting to see um, how it evolves and, and people's awareness of it. I wonder, um, I'm just curious to ask the, the um, really like what the, the way, the form that it takes of how you work with people, right? Right now we have this kind of picture that you have this very rich education and, and wealth of experiences that relate from the spiritual to the academic and your experiences working with different folks as it relates to abuse and um, and religion and spirituality. But what does it look like? Are you are you having, you know, one-on-one sessions with people? Are you are you functioning like a, a like a, a, um, a counselor would? Yeah, actually, yes. Okay. So it takes a, a couple of different forms. So sometimes it will come up definitely in one-on-one counseling sessions for sure. 
And then sometimes it'll show up in organizations. So I had the good fortune of having somebody pulled me aside 15 years ago or maybe 16 years ago and say, you should really consider professional development training, not just the counseling. And I was going to do all this programming with youth. And they said, no, do something for staff like the staff that works with these organizations. And I said, oh, and I had never thought of that. So I said, sure. I started off with with the sexual abuse, the sexuality piece. But then after I had the good fortune of meeting some people with the women's women's wellness program at the Garrison Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with the Garrison. I I am. Yeah. I love Garrison. Love the food. Used to love going there. I mean, of course, there's more than the food, but the food is the most. <laughs> so, so basically at Garrison Institute, there was a team of people who were consultants. They were therapists. They worked in yoga and breath work. Just an awesome team of women. They were the ones who brought me into learning about vicarious trauma. What we would do is we would go as a team to various locations. We would go to that, uh, domestic violence shelters. We would work with the staff there. And after completing the work with that project, I realized that that topic of vicarious trauma and wellness was something that the social service agencies that I was working at would benefit from. Because people who were on the front lines working with children, family welfare, social services, uh, I think in New York, it's ACS, over in Jersey, it's Division of Youth and Family Services, any version of child protective services and other social service organizations that help traumatized and vulnerable populations greatly benefit from learning how the work impacts them. Because if you're working with people who've been traumatized over time, it will have an impact on you. And that's what vicarious trauma is. So I just finished a training. What's today? Monday. Just on Thursday, I just did a training uh, for an agency, a large agency that works with children and families and was able to have an intimate discussion and talk about resources and tools and how to navigate that landscape of work as well as personal life, because work, we hope that it ends at five o'clock if your clock is nine to five, but sometimes the effects of work, it seeps over into other areas of life. Yeah. I want to ask a question. This just kind of came up for me, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts about it, but I, last week, um, I found out that a, a good old friend of mine lost her husband very suddenly. And I found myself just really thinking about the pain that she's going through. She has a 12-year-old son and, um, and just thinking about them a lot. And I realized that for myself, I, I, like yesterday, I was like, I feel like I'm down. I feel like something's wrong with me. Something feels off. And I would talk about it as being like having maybe not good boundaries with my empathy, right? Where I've sort of let myself kind of drift into experiencing their their suffering right now. And it's, and it's actually having an effect on me. But I wonder if there's a similar thing just for, for folks who maybe 
you know, are uh, not familiar with vicarious trauma or think that maybe it wouldn't affect them because they're not specifically in a profession that works to help other people. If there is any relationship in, in a way to that, anytime you see somebody who's, who suffers or experiences something bad, if that is a, maybe even, you know, less, um, not as as potent, but but a form of vicarious trauma, or are they two separate things? That's a great question, and it is separate. And this is how. So I'm going to slow me down, if it, or tell me rewind to Shannon, go back, so that I can repeat something if I need to go back. So this is the thing: what you're talking about is related to your empathy. You are spot on. You have a friend who has lost her husband, and my condolences. My condolences. We have had so much loss in this last year, over a year there. I feel that we need to continually do some grieving rituals as a country and as a world. So that's just the first thing. So when someone close to us passes uh, or someone who is related to someone close to us, of course, we're going to feel something because of the heart connection, especially when we're witnessing the people that we love have a hard time. That is not vicarious trauma, though. So this this is what vicarious trauma is. Vicarious trauma, a practical definition, is when someone who is in the position of helping in any way over a long period of time is exposed to the trauma of another person by being in relationship or working with someone who is exposed to trauma, someone who is better yet not exposed to trauma, but someone who has experienced trauma. So I can give you an example. EMT workers. EMT workers, whatever city you are across the country, constantly having to to rush to the scenes and and help people in many type of different situations, that's traumatic. Trauma in and of itself is a shock or an offense to an individual or a group of people that has a lasting uh, damaging effect that can show up physically, mentally, emotionally, and or spiritually. So it's that shock and offense to the system. And there are many different symptoms that we can see or after effects of trauma. What you experience and what many people experience in terms of caregiving is indirect exposure. So let's use the example of your friend losing her husband is no doubt traumatic because that is a shock. And you as a secondary person are witnessing that. So you may experience a symptom yourself, but you haven't been working with her over a long period of time where it ends up changing who you are on the inside and how you look at the world. Vicarious trauma changes the way that we perceive ourselves. It can change the way that we perceive the world. It can also make us feel isolated. The good thing though, is that we don't have to stay stuck there. So one instance would not be vicarious trauma. It's something that has a cumulative effect over a long period of time. Was that clear? 
Yes, that was very clear. Okay. So today I am talking to DeShannon Barnes-Bowens, who <clears throat> is a counselor and an educator, a psychotherapist, a professional development trainer, a spiritual counselor, all many different hats that she wears to essentially help promote better wellness and self-care and healing in the world. And admittedly, I've been talking about self-care for a long time, but I feel as though the term um, sort of causes people to just sort of like wave their hand at it. Like, oh, whatever, you're talking self-care again? Uh, you know, either, you know, get over yourself or I don't have time for it or, you know, whatever <laughs> their response might be. Some people might embrace it. That's awesome. But I feel like it's maybe an overused term is is the, the vibe that I'm getting Um Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm projecting. Anyway, I wanted, <laughs> until we come up with a better term or a better phrase, I, I want to keep talking about it because it's so important. And I want to ask one more question about vicarious trauma before we kind of move more into talking about wellness and self-care. But I guess it relates to this idea because one of the, I'll just say one of the areas where I feel like I see it um, wellness and self-care kind of struggle to exist is in the activism world. Mm -hmm. And, and I wondered if activism can have an effect of a vicarious trauma, depending upon the type of activism you're doing. Um, but I wonder if that's, that's, you know, something that you're familiar with. Absolutely. Act, especially today. So just some examples, and I'm so glad that we're talking about this because activists really need to implement self-care and really be mindful of vicarious trauma. And the reason being is if you're doing the type of activism where you are trying to change systems and you are advocating for people who have been historically oppressed, marginalized, even if you're talking about trauma, is it's enacted on planet, species, doing that work over long periods of time has an effect on the person. If you are seeing oppression, if you're seeing that up close all of the time, we can use racial trauma as an example. Uh, any type of front, uh, people, again, in the domestic violence, intimate partner violence movements, people who are even advocating for environmental justice. And when you are seeing up close the traumatic effects of things that are happening to animals and some of these pictures of different uh, animal species, it, humans are just activating. I prefer to use the word activating instead of triggering. That's part of my self-care. Uh, just because of what a trigger reminds me of. You know, I don't, I don't want to think of that. So I use the word activating. But if you, there is not a plan in place to really look at oneself and say, okay, when I'm doing this particular thing, I notice this reaction in me. Like, 
my heart beat becomes off. My nervous system feels dysregulated. I'm just something I'm just off. I have a headache. My stomach's upset. These different types of things, activists and anybody working in any helping profession really need to tune into the effect that these things have on their body. If we we just as human beings really need to pay more attention to our bodies because our bodies let us know. They let us know when we can't sleep that something's off, when we can't eat that something's off. So activists absolutely can uh, suffer the effects of vicarious trauma when they're doing that work over a period of time. So it's better to learn about it at the beginning before you get in, because I didn't know this. I had to learn on the other side once I was in it. But if someone can bring this up in your circle and activists can come together and strategize and talk to each other to say, hey, this is what activates me. Okay, well, this activates me. Then they can create a network where it's this community of care, where you are supporting each other and what each other needs. So I know that Charlene cannot handle this particular type of situation because it activates her and reminds her of something that happened in the past. So I'm going to pass this over to Terrell so that maybe he can step in. And when you have these ongoing conversations, it makes the activism work more sustainable instead of people burning out due to vicarious trauma and being overburdened with the stress of the work. That's very useful. Um, it it makes me, you said um, how we have to listen to our body. And, and I know from my own experience and also from listening to other people's experiences that, you know, it started in kind of my corporate work where I, I, I served um, you know, the services were provided to the big law firms in Manhattan, right, who work like 24 hours a day. So it was just like you you were always working, you were always going. And there's no time. You don't, you don't stop to listen to your body. You're always kind of, um, you're, you're keeping it going through some substance, whether it's food, coffee, alcohol, whatever, right? You're just kind of keeping the body going. And <clears throat> And I know from my my time doing some some significant volunteer work that it can be the same the same kind of system where it's just like all hands on deck. You have to keep going. You got to keep going. Certainly, if we think about the healthcare professionals last this past year and what they had to go through, you know, where is there time for people to slow down? so that they can listen to the messages of their body. I don't know how we how we help people do that other than to do what you're saying is to create a community of care where we all are acknowledging that this is important. How does that how does that feel for you? Absolutely, Teresa, it's important. One, I love that you started with the law firm example that's so true because I actually did a vicarious trauma training for a law firm a few years ago in Manhattan. 
in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And if memory serves me correct, it was actually one particular part of the law firm that was dealing with these intimate partner violence cases. Mm, wow. So they reading over all those details and in the paperwork, it doesn't make someone immune, but just the whole cycle of law, because I do know lawyers, they, they are in my life. And the way that you constantly work, 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 it doesn't promote self-care, working those types of hours and working in balance. So when you brought up the law firm as well as healthcare, especially, I mean, hello, health care, <laughs> right. right? So in the, in the all these systems, what's needed is for the people, the powers that be to actually build it into the system. Because if you don't build it into the system, then everybody's left on their own and it would better support people if it was actually implemented at work, if work environments became more conscious of that. I can give you an example. One of the places that we went to years ago when I was part of that women's wellness team, that we actually met with the executive director, all of the top people, and they wanted to figure out how can we actually bring something into the administrative offices? And I always remember how they had this corner. It was a really large space. I couldn't tell you how many square feet it was. But I remember in the back corner, there was this big couch. They had headphones. They had the stereo system. Yes, the stereo system. <laughs> I dated myself. Uh, the stereo system in the back. And people would sign up. There was all kinds of music that you could just go and zone out for a minute, all, all kinds of different things. And I think if they also had people come in who would do yoga and things like that from time to time. So not, OK, you employee or service person, you go out and do it on your own time. How about no, we actually are going to make some time for you to access this right here on the job that would actually be more beneficial. I, I do hear about people doing that. And I do think it's very important. You know, even at, at Radio Kingston, they do a breathe segment every day from 3.30 to 3.45, which is just a little, you know, nudge to, we're here breathing. Can you pause from your day? Um, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but if, if there's, you know, I'm like imagining in the law firm, which also at least the time that I was working in that field would have beds for people to nap on at like four in the morning because they've been working there all day long. Do you think that creating those kinds of um, offerings are just sort of putting lip service on it? And that's maybe a negative way of looking at it. Those, that's my words. But is it really being effective? Um, or do we do we need to really look at the bigger system change? I know that's a complicated kind of question, but does that make sense to you? That does make system. I feel like it's a both and. Okay. Yeah. So that yes, we need to look at the systematic change aspect as it relates to work culture. Mm -hmm. People who I meet from other countries talk about how much Americans work. And that we work, 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 and we're miserable. We're, we're not, we're not, we don't have a lot of joy and we work so much. So something is off in terms of the expectations of the amount of work 
that we do and we're required to do and what the benefit is of that. But at the same time, I do think it's helpful for individual companies and institutions to implement this as well, because not many do. So to actually implement that can make things better. But there's a caveat not to implement it just to have people do more work. Right. Implement these systems because you really care about the people and you want to see them well and healthy and vibrant, not just working for you, but in their whole lives. Yeah. So how let's say somebody's listening to this and they're they're concerned that maybe their work, whether it be, you know, their job or their activism work or um, however it might show up that that what they are um, experiencing might be vicarious trauma. Are there signs that people can look for to suggest that it's warrants some deeper investigation? Absolutely. There are signs and they, they would be different for everyone. But the first thing to just rewind what I was saying earlier is to pay attention to your body. Like how I know some people they'll have like a nervous twitch on the eye, like their eye will start jumping or eyebrow when they have to go into work. They're fine when they're not, but as soon as they go in, uh, sometimes people hands shaking. If you notice sometimes when someone is sitting in their knee is bouncing up and down, it may not at home, but something about being in the work environment, heart palpitations, loss of appetite, not being able to sleep. Some other more common symptoms are when work-related intrusive thoughts, or not even work, because vicarious trauma can show up outside of work because of other forms of volunteer work, like you say, or just interacting with people who have been seriously traumatized over a long period of time. If thoughts are incessant, like they're coming in constantly, work-related nightmares or nightmares related to the people that you're, you're trying to help or the cause that you're trying to help, a loss of sensation as it relates to pleasure. So that can be any type of pleasure, any form of pleasure, where all of a sudden there's just a loss, there's no interest in it. Sometimes the expression of emotion in form of crying consistently, crying and I've been around people who say, I just break out into tears and I don't know why. Like nothing is just, I just start crying. Headaches, chest pains. Those are all different, like all different types of things. And you know what else is assigned to Teresa? What are the people around you saying about you? What have they noticed that has changed because of the nature of the work that you do or the volunteering, who you interact with? What are people saying? Are they saying, well, you know, Teresa, I've noticed that you used to, you, you know, you would smile more and now you're very withdrawn. I ask you a question. It's like you're not even listening. And then when I ask you twice, you snap at me or, you know, you click, you go off those different, all those different types of things are signs. 
It's interesting that you say that to listen to what others are perhaps observing, because as you were describing a lot of those physical things, it made me think that there's potentially so many people who just learn to live with those sensations and it just becomes the new them, right? It just becomes what they, they endure every day, unless it, it literally stops them, right? It gets so serious that it stops them. And that to me is often like, what is the wake up call when it gets that serious that you have to go to a doctor for something, um, and so what you're suggesting is to try to see it when it's, when it's just starting, right? When you can observe that shift in yourself. Absolutely. It's the key component of raising awareness. There was a concept that uh, they had come up with, again, referencing women's wellness and also a resource of a book. Oh, what was that book called? Hold on. I just, I have to tell you, I think I have it right in front of me here. The book for anyone interested is called Transforming the Pain by Lori Ann Perlman. There's another book that I highly recommend called Trauma Stewart by Laura Van Der Noot Lipsky. So transform, Trauma Stewardship and Transforming the Pain. I think it was Transforming the Pain that talked about um, raising your awareness. And so in women's wellness, with that wellness team, they came up with, we need to look at the ABCs of addressing vicarious trauma. So the A is for awareness, the B is for balance, and the C is for connection. And if you focus on each of those things, then you can transform the effect of it. So raising awareness, that first pillar, that A, take doing that assessment is key. And when you were talking, the first thing that came up in my mind was, we're not meant to suffer. Mm. So we, we don't have to suffer continuously throughout our lives and just endure. And depending on your background, your history, herstory, uh, where you stand at the intersection of your own social identities. If you are a descendant of someone who is, or people who have engaged in movements of liberation, those ancestors that came before made a sacrifice for you, for your work, for you to work and live and breathe and do what you do. So why do you have to continue to suffer? That's powerful. Uh, I guess the thing that comes up for me, uh, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be very honest about a judgmental thought I had this past week. I, I think I had emailed you that I had listened to some podcasts that had, they were talking about self-care and they were, the first one I think was by, with Charles Eisenstein, or Eisenstein, I think it's Eisenstein. Anyways, he's a famous writer, um, kind of philosopher, and he was interviewing a woman who had been involved in activist movements. She had worked over in Israel and was trying to be part of the peacekeeping movement over there. And she then had switched her work because she got burned out and she started doing urban gardening 
urban farming. And so because of, I think, maybe her farming background, she started to identify the cycle of, of, the, of the farm, where a, a good farm will allow the earth to regenerate. And so it goes through a fallow period where you aren't growing anything or you're growing crops that aren't intended to be harvested for consumption. They are nutritive in inducing crops. Mm. Um, and then I was listening to another podcast. It was so funny because I, these have been saved on my phone to listen to for probably like six months and I haven't. And I chose this week to listen to them before our, our conversation. And I didn't realize that this is what they were actually talking about. But then the second podcast was a Rich Roll podcast who he's like a super athlete kind of guy, a vegan athlete. Um, but they were also talking about periodizing your life and how you need to have these fallow periods. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where the, the sort of judgmental thought comes up is I'm looking at these very successful people, super successful. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, like, why don't you take time off? Like, you know, like that you it's, it's it a matter of a paycheck? Like what is keeping you from taking some time off? Whereas there are other groups of people that literally can't take time off because they are so connected to their activism work or because they have to have, they have to work longer hours, you know, to be able to af- to take care of their families. And I found myself judging these people, which is, I'm just admitting this out loud um, and thinking that, it should be easy for them because because they can afford it. And maybe that's the essence of it is that they can afford to take time off and so stop complaining about it. And I'll just leave that there. My real question is about um, the folks that really do struggle to be able to find space in their life, right? Who it's not a matter of, you know, I'm you know, making $50,000 less of my 300,000 that I'm making every year, right? It's like somebody who has more challenging economic situation or family responsibility or whatever it is that just feels, it feels so hard to make time for themselves. How, how do you help people create that space and, and find that commitment to themselves? That's wonderful when you use the phrase commitment to themselves. So let's hold that. I want to respond to your admission. And you're in, thank you for being brave, safe on airspace. But in all seriousness, it really, it comes down to culture and what people put on work in terms of their own sense of value and self-worth. So if your value and self-worth is equated to how much you work, and how much you produce uh, in terms of financially, uh, in terms of maybe name recognition, brand, uh, how many people that you influence on social media, sales, and and the like, then if that is how we as a society affirm people in this unhealthy work culture that we have, then people are going to keep on working regardless of how much money they make, because it's a habit. And what people need to take time is, and perhaps have some support in, is redefining what is of value to me. 
And so that leads to your question in terms of helping people make a commitment to themselves. I start with what do you value? And I walk people through a process of identifying their core life values, because you are correct in that self-care has become this term that people throw around and it becomes individualized. Well, you just need to take care of yourself. It's on you. And it's not just an I, it's a we thing. We are a culture. And so it's not just that I need to take care of myself. Yes, I have responsibility, but we also need to take care of each other. And that is that takes time. But for the individual, it starts with knowing that they have power. And if they identify their core life values, then that they can develop self-care actions that are sustainable. So that even relates back to the a woman you were speaking of who was talking about the farming and fallow and regenerative periods and all of that. Sustainable self-care is what's needed, not just self-care, just because what is self-care to you? Someone may tell you, oh, you need to go meditate. You need to do yoga. You need to go outside in a cabin in a tent. And you, you could hate camping being in the tent. You could have allergies and that just is not the thing for you. Um, perhaps that there are some breathing issues that you may have at the uh, current moment and a certain level of deep breathing might be painful depending on what your physical health situation is. So life values, what are those? Can we come up with some actions and behaviors that are linked to that, that would bring you joy, a lot of feel goods, as I like to say, that is what will transform an individual. And that's what will keep it going versus just this flip it. You got to take care of yourself. A lot of people don't know, but people do know what matters to them if they're able to talk about it with someone who really cares and wants to hear them speak on it. And that's the starting point. And that's usually how a plan can stick. And you just keep going back and revisiting like, okay, well, this period of my life, I'm not really feeling what I was doing. Yeah, I still have these life values, but now I'm feeling this new thing. And I want to implement something new around this new value. So this value that I didn't realize that I loved so much was fun. I used to have fun when I was a kid. It didn't matter how much money that we had coming into our home, my grandparents, my parents, whoever the guardian was who raised you. And I realize now at this point in my life that I need self-care actions that are related around fun. No, I didn't say it was my one of my life values before, but I realize I need it now. So I want to do that. And then having somebody to be accountable to, Teresa. So not accountable in a punishing way, like when you're showing up with a report card with a little check, like, did you do your self-care today? But simply someone to talk with about what was it like to engage in that action? Or why did I bypass it? Why did I ignore it yet again? What is the obstacle that's getting in the way? Because I really want to engage in this sustainable self-care action. But what blocked me? And those things can be processed and teased out so that people can step by step implement the change. Because what I find is that people are very judgmental. 
very critical and hard on themselves. And so if they don't do it right the first time, if it doesn't stick, they say, oh, to heck with it. And they're done. I'm so glad I admitted my judgmental nature and my judgmental thoughts because that was very, that was a beautiful way to bring me back to reality um, and completely on point. So thank you for sharing all of that. You're welcome. When you were talking in our last little uh, segment about finding the things that you value. It, it reminded me of um, an article I'd written based on this movie that I had seen, which is a long story, but it was, the idea was to think about what do we worship and actually noticing that the ways we spend our time is actually showing what we worship. It's 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 giving us an indication of what our value system is. And so often we just aren't thinking about that. We aren't pausing to notice what we spend our time doing and why, you know? Um, and so that just kind of makes me think about the um, your spiritual tradition the Ifa tradition. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it. You know, after I our conversation, I was doing a little research about it um, and just kind of noticing how so many of the uh, spiritual traditions have similar elements to them and how important it is for me, in my opinion, to have these elements kind of rediscovered and and brought back to more of the mainstream, where sort of our the major religions have have left some of those important elements out. Um, so I'm very curious, sort of like how you described when you were counseling folks and you were interested in their different religions. Um, I'm very curious about different spiritual traditions and religions. I don't know how you categorize the Ifa tradition, but I'd love to hear from you about what it is and how you found it. Well, thank you for asking that. I love telling that story. And I love what you just referenced, Teresa, about how we spend our time is what we worship. That is so true. And one of the things that I'll add before I answer that question is, if you look at how you spend your time in your life, when it comes to going back to self-care, how much time is there really for you would be my question. And sometimes what we'll do in the workshops is I'll pass out a circle back in the days when we would pass out paper handouts and trainings and I'll pass out a circle and ask people to divide it up as if it were a pie or a graph and how much time is dedicated to work or personal relationships with people that you love and what you see and what I've seen over the years because it's been 15 years now uh, doing this in some form is that people worship work. That at least 50% for most people, not every individual is dedicated to work. 
And so when I was able to start going through this and I noticed my own assessments of how I was allocating my time, I wanted to bring my life into balance so that I could be worshiping the things that I say that I like to worship. Right. And even though I love my work, even the work that I do, I do by choice. Uh, it took a lot of courage to start off my own and, and start my business. But even that, I don't worship that. I, I divvy my time up. So just food for thought for the listeners. So my tradition, how did I fall upon or fall into this beautiful path of Ifa? Well, first, it started amongst the Yoruba people in the southwest region of Nigeria thousands of years ago, and it probably, I would say, is the largest and most popular African indigenous spiritual tradition in the world. And the reason being is because through the transatlantic slave trade, that different people ended up in different parts of the world, and particularly in the Western Hemisphere, is enslaved people were dropped in North America, South America, Central America, it took on different forms. And so when I'm in a room and I'm teaching kind of an E5 one-on-one to people in interfaith places, and I'll ask how many people have heard of Santeria, usually a lot of, a lot of hands go up because this, it's this, the same deities, except what happened is, is that for Santeria, they had to practice in secret because you could be killed for practicing this tradition. And so what they did is they came up with a very ingenious way of connecting the Orisha with Catholic saints. And so while to the oppressors and the colonizers, it looked like, oh, they're praying to the saints. They were praying to the deities that we call the Orishas. And so you will hear the term, the Ifa Orisha tradition. Ifa, as I said, it comes from the Yoruba people in Nigeria. So how it found me, one of my favorite stories. I had a friend, uh, and still a friend. I am mother uh, to her, her oldest child, godmother to her oldest child. And she was exploring this tradition. And we're talking like 20 years ago. And she asked me to give her a ride to some people who were priests, a husband and wife in the Bronx. And so I took her to have this ritual, whatever it was, I was not to be a part. I was just the chauffeur. So took took her there. And when I walked in the door, they said, well, you look very familiar. They just swore that we had met. I'm like, no, I hadn't even been in New York a full year, I don't think. I mean, I could have, but I wasn't sure. But anyway, there was a connection and a feeling there. And through talking with my girlfriend after she went through this ritual in the back, I didn't see what it was. She came out dressed in all white, Teresa. She was like floating and serene. And I was like, what, what happened? What did you do? And she said, they did something for my ori. And you spell that O-R-I. It, it means head, but it's much more than that. It's talking about the spiritual essence of who we really are. I like to define it. My own definition is the divine spark of the creator individualized is each and every person on the planet. Every person has their ori, who, who they really are, their, their divinity. And she said, that's what they did. And I was like, wow. And she had a teacher 
who we call godparents, spiritual godparents in our traditions. And I met her and I said, well, I'm just really interested in where my ancestors come from. So I started meeting with this priestess in Queens. We would meditate. We would talk about ancestors. She would recommend books. And I would drive from Westchester County, uh, lower Westchester County, out, you know, out to Queens and we would have these sessions and I just felt like I was growing. And then when I really wanted to pin down where my ancestors came from, she said, I know just the person to send you to. She sent me to, and it ended up being the same people in the Bronx, that, but I didn't know that. So I go back to the Bronx thinking, not realizing it's the same people, thinking that I'm meeting with a genealogist who is going to research my ancestry. I went home to St. Louis, where I'm originally from, got all the information from my parents as far back as I could. So I'm coming with names ready to for this genealogist. And when I realized it's the same place, I, I still didn't get it, Teresa. I said, wait a minute, these people are priests and genealogists? I didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> so what happened is, is that the consultation regarding my ancestors was a spiritual divination or what we will call a reading in the tradition. So I had that experience and it really just changed my life because my mentor, who is my friend and, and you know, forever a mentor, but also really like a big brother, Baba Ola and his uh, wife, Ia Oshinsina, they became like family. And so with that particular reading or divination, a lot of things came up in terms of things that I would do. And I didn't ask any questions aloud. And at the end of it, true story, when he finished everything, I was blown away. I had my notebook, I'm taking notes. And then he said, well, that's all that's really coming to me. Do you have any questions? Silently in my mind, I did not utter this word aloud. I said, well, you didn't tell me where my ancestors are. He closed his eyes as soon as I thought it. I did not speak a word. He opened his eyes and he said, oh, your ancestors are from the Congo Zaire area of Africa. And I said, whoa. And from that point on, I became a practitioner of the tradition. And then about five years later, I went through my own initiation to become a priestess, an Orisha priestess of a particular deity. And then... Uh, five years after that, I went through more levels of initiation, and it's a joy uh, of my life. I used to kind of keep it hidden uh, because of that past history of stereotypes of African traditional and indigenous uh, spiritual paths, and I had to come into my own process of integration and being fully present with it. Yes, I'm this, and I'm that, and I'm this, and I also represents this spiritual path that I love where the purpose is to self-actualize and live your purpose. Components are connecting to your ancestors because they guide us and they know what we don't. So even though they're not in the physical form, we believe that our ancestors can still commune and guide us and that we connect with these deities, which are forces of nature to commune to help us express our talents and gifts, but it is our ori, our head, that helps us to actually live out the purpose. 
And that's the tradition. And it's been going on. It'll be 20 years later this year that I've been in it. And it has been a true blessing in my life. If I wasn't able to integrate that with all of the other things that I do, um, I wouldn't be where I am. That's a beautiful story. And it's interesting, too, to think that at some point you were not open about it and and how beautiful and, and to me, uh, powerful it is that you are today because you know, that fear, which, you know, we might draw to the the Catholic Church, right, that imposed a lot of fear on people for trying to find their spiritual connection through a, a means other than through the church. I feel like it just kept everything so locked up. And it's beautiful that in today's world, it can be more open, that people can find the way that they connect to really their own divinity, as you're talking about, um, without that fear that gets imposed in, in some other religions. Absolutely. Some people say it's one of the fastest growing traditions uh, throughout the world, because in some form of whether we're talking about Ifa or Santeria or in Brazil, it's Candomblé is what they call it there. And there's other uh, variations of these traditions that are their own traditions. There are millions of people who are practitioners and worshiping in this way. And things have changed with indigenous wisdom worldwide. So it's not, it's something about this pandemic, I feel like it's brought light to oppression. And so those that were pushed to the outskirts are now being brought in because everyone has something of value to offer. Well, I am grateful for all of the goodness that you offer to the world and for giving up some of your very valuable time um, to have this conversation today. For those who are listening, um, I I will say that you can find Shannon at her website, which is ilera.com. I will also link to it in the show notes. So if you're driving or otherwise um, preoccupied, you don't have to memorize it or write it down right now, but it is ilera.com. And uh, are you, you are still involved with the event that's happening up at the retreat center up here. I didn't check in with you about that. Yes, there it's a retreat. It's for BIPOC leaders in the Hudson Valley area. And so they filled that up. And so I will be doing that retreat the second weekend in July, I believe. And it is full? Yes, they they reached out uh, to people, particularly people who were BIPOC leaders, and they had a certain number of spaces. And they filled them up, which, which was great. That's really wonderful. That's good. That's good. Um, Well, so I will uh, link to your information. And when you have other things coming up, please do reach out. We'd happy to share it worldwide so that people can find your good work and, and know what's happening. And I'm grateful for your presence and the healing that you're doing here. It's really beautiful. Well, thank you for having me, Teresa. It was a joy. And we'll have to do it again. Yes, I would love that. 
So for those of you um, we've still who are still sticking around, I've got more of the show left. Um, I am going to be playing a song here coming up, which I dug up from the internet. Um, I was looking for artists who are of the tradition of the Ifa uh, Orisa tradition, and I found this artist. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, her name correctly, Asafiobi Afendaba. And so I wanted to play a song by her that is called Ifa um, as a little interlude between um, segments here. So we're going to give that a listen and then I will come back to talk a little bit more. Um, so don't go away. And thank you so much to Shannon. So if you have listened to this show in the past, you have probably heard me say, share my opinion about the Catholic Church. And I want to just acknowledge that um, my opinions about the church are about the institution, which I've said before also. Um, They are not about the people or the practitioners of it, although it might be um, some of the leadership of the church. I I might have issue with the way things are done. Um, And I found myself being aggravated by the church um, in the past few weeks. I'm actually trying to find the articles that caused me some aggravation. Um, And I don't want to take away from the beauty of the conversation that I just had with DeShannon, which really was very focused on healing. And I and I love the fact that she is able to see the um, sort of the the foibles that I see in the world and others through a very kind of forgiving and loving lens versus my my little bit more fiery response to some of these things. So um, I want to apologize in advance if I do get fired up, but I guess it's just, it's just the way I am. And it's the something that's, that I'll have to work through. But so the Catholic church um, had recently announced that they will Basically, they've enacted a law within the Catholic Church that makes it illegal for women to be um, giving Mass. And this is not anything new necessarily, um, because women haven't been able to become priests in the Catholic Church. But the the difference is that for some reason, which I don't really understand, but for some reason, um, maybe it's because people are doing, p- women are, are taking higher roles within the church that I'm just not familiar of. I am no longer a practicing Catholic. Um, and 
I think it's largely just because I felt like there were a lot of hypocrisies and I don't know that it actually um, was doing me, serving me in any way. Um, so I, I, I don't want to speak about something that I'm not completely familiar with other than the fact that I was raised as a Catholic, but the, the church for some reason went so far as to say that um that women, it is now illegal if a woman were to give mass or for anybody to support that happening. Um, I'm not sure what the consequences are. For some reason, I can't seem to find the article online. Um, but it just, it. I really paused and tried to understand why that's necessary in today's world. Why is it that women can't do things that men can do within the religion? And I'm not sure that there is an answer that will satisfy me. So maybe it's a rhetorical question, but it, it really caused me to just pause and wonder how folks who are practicing Catholics feel about that. Um, and, and I guess in, in, in another way, I'm, I'm curious as to why now is it is it because women are starting to take on more active roles within the church that the church is requiring um, a more hardened response to that? Yeah, I, I don't know, um, but the reason why I'm talking about it is because when I hear stories like DeShannon's where she has found a spiritual tradition that allows her to embody herself and, and her own divinity, it, to me, it just feels like this is, this is what the point of spirituality and religion is. It's not to necessarily worship somebody or something Although there is an element of respecting, right? There is an element of caring for other people, but but to go so far as to worshiping something the way that the Catholic religion has made it out that that's the only way um, to be a good person is to worship their, the God and um, the, the Son of God. Um, and, and so I, I guess I should probably have somebody on the show who, <laughs> who, who's an expert in this, who can talk to me about it, because I don't understand what the purpose of religion is, if that's the purpose, if the, re if the religion is there to serve and to have, um, to help people feel better, to help take care of people, to help people take care of others, then it seems like a brilliant idea. But for folks who are, are simply inclined to use religion to uh, basically put restrictions in place around the way people can or cannot be, I don't understand how that's actually serving a spiritual purpose. Next week on the show, I... I will most likely, every time I say this, it always backfires. Every time I announce a guest, I shouldn't say every time, but often when I announce a guest in advance, um, something happens and that 
guest gets moved to another week. But I did an interview of a woman uh, named Sonita Alizadeh, who is an Afghanistan. She's a she was born in Afghanistan and was um, uh, fled to Iran for a period of her life, and now lives in the United States and. A, a lot of the reason that um, she does what she does, which she's a, a rapper, she's a musician, she's also an activist, but a lot of the reason that she does what she does is because of the laws that have been enacted by the um, Muslim religion and the restrictions that they place on women. And the, what, so, you know, that's very present of mine. And then I hear the, NPR reporting about what the Catholic Church has done. I don't know why I said NPR, except for the fact that's where I read the article. But the, that the Catholic Church is further restricting um, what women can and cannot do within the church. To me, it just feels like there's a, a resurgence of this kind of need to control a situation. And, you know, we read the book Caliban and the Witch back in the month of March. And I can't help but think that there are powers that be, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that are concerned about losing power, and that that's really what this is all about, is a, is a concern about losing their own power because somebody else is going to step in and, and take over some responsibility and have some decision-making power. Um, and if, if that's the case, then obviously that's not, that's not a religious you know, need that there's no religious benefit to that. That's purely a power um, move. And so I don't feel like in any way that those types of actions should be supported or allowed to take place. Of course, as somebody who's no longer in the church, I don't have a lot of power to say that. Um, but it, it, I'll go back to the point of me bringing this up is to to celebrate the fact that faiths like the Ifa or Risa faith now have more ability to practice. When we talked about this, when we were discussing Caliban and the Witch, we learned about the ways that the um, colonizers, the, um, the folks that came over who were practicing the Catholic Church, how they forced others to convert to their religion. And it, it required or it forced folks to not only stop practicing their, their original spiritual practices or to go underground with them. So the fact that there is um, more freedom and more uh, space for folks to practice their religions as they want to, which is, of course, right, that's, that's in our constitution, the right to practice your own religion. Um, and I found an article um, about West African religions like Ifa that are on the rise. And I wanted to just read excerpts from this article. It's in the Baltimore Sun. I'll link to the article online if you want to refer back to it. But it tells a beautiful story about folks who have recovered their connection to their African ties. And it, to me, it's 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 a better way of talking about this this conversation rather than me just criticizing the Catholic Church for what they're doing. Um, so to the extent that you want to call me out on criticizing people, please do. I should be telling just more positive stories. So the article talks about 
um, a group of women. They've gathered in a clearing by a stream in Baltimore County one chilly early spring day. Some in the colorful African head ties known as galeys. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Others wearing bracelets trimmed in shells or carved in wood. One by one, they stepped forward to toss offerings into the Gwyn's Falls, a pineapple, four oranges, a bouquet of tulips. And when the lead priestess of these African-American women dropped a handful of shells to the ground and scrutinized their pattern, a message came through. Their celebration of the spring equinox was blessed by the divine. The river goddess, O sun, has accepted our gifts, said the priestess, a Mount Washington resident and longtime practitioner of Ifa, an ancient West African faith. She prefers to be called Olori, the name she is known by within the faith. She and other members of the group regard it as disrespectful to discuss their faith using what they call their government names. Ifa is one of an interrelated network of religions with African roots, including voodoo, centuria, and Sango baptism that appear to be gaining popularity in the United States, including in Maryland, as some African-Americans seek a spiritual experience firmly grounded in their own cultural heritage. Olori, a Copen State graduate and entrepreneur, earned her initiation as a priestess while visiting the Benin Republic two decades ago. She has since earned the status of Ianifa, or Mother of Wisdom, the equivalent of a high priestess within the faith. <clears throat> a single mother, she is an elder of Dautas of the moon, a group of more than a dozen women who practice Ifa and related African faiths. They gather along the Gwyn's Falls in Villanova Park in Pikesville this month in observance of the equinox, a day they say represents a rebirth of nature's vitality. Scholars say it's hard to know exactly how many Americans practice Ifa or the many other African faiths that boast overlapping rituals and traditions. Many keep their involvement private, and numbers are hard to track given that membership in the faiths can be defined in a variety of ways. But anecdotal evidence suggests interest in West African religions is on the rise. These traditions are indeed growing in the United States, says Alberta. Albert Waku, a professor at Florida International University who specializes in African and Caribbean religions. They have a strong appeal to groups of African Americans who have been struggling with questions of identity, who don't feel they fit so well within the American system. They're especially appealing to women who tend to hold more powerful positions with the African traditions than in Western cultures. Organized in Baltimore five years ago, the Doubtus have held a national gathering for African-American women interested in such religions every October since 2016. Note, the article that I'm reading is from 2019, so it could be slightly outdated. The first drew 202, sorry, the first drew 150 people. Some came as far away as Canada and California. Last year's attracted 300, and organizers are preparing for more this fall. Olori adds that hundreds of men and women attend some of the more popular IFA events in the Baltimore, Washington area. 
Wuaku says strong bases of West African religions have emerged in California, Florida, Michigan, and other places around the country. The African religious traditions provide a symbol around which its followers can integrate, he said. That's one reason they're such a powerful draw. And I just want to read that again. The African religious traditions provide a symbol around which its followers can integrate. Ifa is a faith and divination system with its roots in Olori's family's ancestral homeland, Yoruba land. The region now encompasses the nations of Benin, Togo, and Ghana, and parts of Nigeria. Like some other religions, Ifa includes magic, the use of traditional medicines, and veneration of the dead. Like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, Ifa is monotheistic, but its supreme creative figure, Oludumare, shares power with dozens of subsidiary deities. Each represents particular elements of life or nature, fire, rebirth, agriculture, the arts, and serves as an intercessor between humans and the creator. It is through ritualistic practice that believers can assess the deity's wisdom and counsel. Incantations, prayers, and divination, such as Olori's reading of four mollusk shells, are believed to summon these deities or the petitioner's ancestors, who may speak to them in dreams, audible sounds, or even in conversation during what appear to be in-person visits. The Dauta say embracing such mystical realities can feel strange at first, but becomes a life-affirming norm. Iyawo Orisa Omitola, a doula and midwife in training from Gaithersburg, founded Dautas of the Moon after having a dream suggesting the idea. Recently pledged as an Orisha priestess dedicated to Yemoja, a, de- a deity associated with rebirth, water, and the moon, the 46-year-old mother of four says she's often visited by the deity as well as by her own forebears. She is certain they are real and have her best interest at heart, whether they're consoling, directing, or rebuking her. She says, I consider myself a rational person, and there have been times on this path when I've thought, am I crazy? Did I hear that, feel that, see that? But talking to ancestors has a totally objective reality for me. When it happens enough, you don't argue with what you see and hear. Their counsel, she says, has helped her learn everything from better prayer and meditation habits to improved personal accountability, all the while bolstering her, her health, helping her make career choices, and rounding out her spiritual life. Ifa has taught me that God is not just something that lives in the sky. God is in all of us, she says. The faith, like others with African roots, has defied the odds by surviving at all, let alone making it to the United States. Historians say that when Western European nations such as Belgium and France began colonizing Africa, they viewed indigenous religions as pagan at best, demonic at worst, and responded by spreading a triumphalist form of Christianity that powerfully eroded traditional practices. 
Africans who venerated male and female deities who looked like them were now introduced to white male religious figures, and they were told only one intercessor, Jesus, mattered. That legacy, Olori says, is why many in the African diaspora still consider Christianity more an agent of oppression than of liberation. Even when she visited West Africa in 1999 and 2000, she says it was hard to find followers of indigenous religions outside the small Beninese village where she took part in the Ifa initiation rites that made her a priestess. In many places, you have to hunt far and wide for traditionalists, she says. You have people in Nigeria who tell you that you're going straight to hell. The uncounted numbers of Arubans and other West Africans who were captured and sold during the transatlantic slave trade had to practice their faith in secret, often at night. But the tradition survived in altered forms, as DeShannon had mentioned, as Santeria in Cuba, Voodoo in Haiti, Sango Baptism in Trinidad. As followers adopted elements of the Catholic, Baptist, and other faith traditions already established in those places. Practitioners of these faiths began arriving in the New York area in the 1950s and spread in the eastern U.S., but Olori says it wasn't until decades later that many African Americans could afford to fly to West Africa and meet elders of the Fa tradition face-to-face. Olori was in her 20s when curiosity led her to the village, a place where priests carry out rites that predate Christianity by thousands of years. During one stay, she and a friend visited a nearby plantation, and Olori says she was alarmed to realize she had many, she had a power many priestesses possessed. She could see dead people. Near the servants' quarters behind the mansion, she says, she spotted a man leaning against a tree, an elder, an old slave. I started talking to him as if I could see him clear as day. Alori's friend, who had been working on the history of the place, later told her those and other details synced up with what she had learned in her research. Raised in a devout Christian home in northwest Baltimore, Alori says the faith simply never resonated with her and failed to reward her curiosity. I'd ask my grandmother questions. Did Adam and Eve come before dinosaurs? Where do women come into play? Why doesn't any one of the people in the Bible look like us? If Jesus is real, why do we never see him? Those are a lot of the questions that I've had as well. <laughs> um, let's see here. I am, okay, let me just, I'll finish reading the article and... I've lost my faith, my, my, my faith. I've lost my place. <clears throat> Nobody had answers. I'm not knocking Christianity. It works for many people. But to me, it felt very empty. I thought there has to be more than this. Recently initiated as an Orisha priestess, one who has been called to f- serve in the faith but remains at an earlier stage of development, she now believes there were ancestors trying to connect with her. She says a deceased uncle on her mother's side, known to have been a chain smoker, frequently visits her in dreams. He has a reassuring presence. As a priestess, she established a small house of worship in her home about seven years ago, and the group has now regulars of 15. For the Equinox celebration, that meant helping oversee things streamside. Olori said a prayer in Yoruba, then in English, and asked whether the deity was pleased with the offerings they made. On the first three tosses of shells, she said the answer came back no. She made adjustments, moving people and object- objects around. 
Finally, the women dumped honey in the Gwyn's Falls for sweetness, a sensation the deities are said to enjoy. The reply came back affirmative. We're going to listen to another song by Asafiobi Afendaba. And this song is called Igun Igun. And then we'll hear some words from the community before I come back to close out the show. So I wanted to acknowledge the new holiday of Juneteenth and say how happy I am that there is a holiday that truly, well, hopefully will truly hold space for real freedom for all peoples. As we approach the traditional holiday of July 4th um, coming up, I always I always start to get into the mindset of how do we better free our minds? And so religion and politics are two themes that I continuously return to of frameworks that keep us um, uh, influenced where we aren't having a freedom of thought. And so I will save those thoughts for the 4th of July, but for now, Juneteenth, is the real day of physical freedom for folks, including the freedom to practice your religion of choice. So big thanks to DeShannon for being my guest today. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you can find her work at ilera, ilera.com. And next week, I will hopefully, fingers crossed, assuming all the technology works out, be playing my interview with Sonita Alizadeh, who is a, a rapper who has a very compelling personal story, um, truly such a positive attitude about life and all that is possible considering how much she's had to gone through in her life. Um, so that is coming up next Monday. And Ida is coming up next after this show, Ida and the Heavy Light Show, which of course, Um, offers you an opportunity for some self-care, some breathing time to just pause. As DeShannon so beautifully pointed out, it's the pausing that makes it possible to notice what's going on for ourselves. It's then that we can notice if if we're suffering in any way, if we are activated in any way. Um, The pausing helps us do that. So breathing at 3.30 if you're up for it. And big thanks to Ian for running the dials today. And thanks to Shauna Falana for the show music. And of course, to um, those of you who are listening to the radio archive, you got to hear Asafiobi Afendaba, which I will link to in the show if you didn't get to hear it on the podcast version. So until next week, love yourself and uplift one another. Ciao.